Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? If you get a paycheck, then you've got the evidence right there. You give a chunk, a bit of all you earn, to a pension plan. And when you retire, you get your reward, regular payments from a pot of money that's been invested to ensure the fund grows. But have you ever thought about where your money goes? In these days of a heightened focus on climate change, more people are paying attention, not just to pension investments, but also to those other big investment funds that promise big gains by focusing on sustainability. This week, we're following the money to find out if your investments, your dollars, your pension can shift spending toward a cleaner, greener future. One person who has tried to follow the money is James Rowe. He's examined just how some of Canada's biggest public pension plans are investing your money. And what he found might surprise you. James is an associate professor of environmental studies at the University of Victoria. Hello. Hi. Why did you want to look into public pension plans? It's not something that people always think about when they think about climate change. Yeah, they have a huge amount of influence given that Canada's public pension plans in total are worth $1.8 trillion. And so, you know, that's a massive amount of capital. And so the decisions that they make in terms of their investments will sort of help determine the pace of our energy transition. And they operated an arm's length, these funds from politicians, which on one hand might be a good thing, but on the other hand, it does make it difficult for there to be democratic accountability. You know, the CPP holds uh, meetings in different cities across the country every year, and that's kind of the primary site at which uh, feedback can be registered. But again, as an individual, one among 20 million, it's, it's hard to have your voice heard if you have concerns about uh, how the fund is investing. Let's get into your research then. W what is it showing? So the CPP dubs itself a climate aware investor. And so that's great. They're using the right words. But we wanted to see what change in investment strategy they've made since Canada signed the Paris Agreement in 2016, committing to avoiding a 1.5 degree increase in, in global temperature. And, and to answer that question, we looked at CPP's public equity investments or, or the stocks they own in fossil fuel companies that sell shares on stock exchanges. And we found that instead of decreasing the number of shares they hold in oil and gas companies, the CPP has actually increased their total number of shares. And indeed, they averaged a 6.8 increase per year since 2016. So some years, uh, you know, was less than others, but overall it was a 6.8 increase per year on average. And so for us, that simply doesn't indicate that the institution is currently serious about energy transition. You also looked at the Caisse de Depot, which is the pension plan in Quebec. What did you find out from your research? 
In terms of looking at number of shares since Canada signed the Paris Agreement, uh, Le Caisse actually did show a small decline in number of shares held. And so, so that's a good thing. Uh, but the rate is pretty slim. And so it was a very uh, small amount of change from 2016. And so they're, they're a smaller fund than the CPP, but actually they have 5 billion held in uh, fossil fuel companies in their public equity portfolio, which is actually more uh, than the CPP uh, does, even though the CPP ultimately has more and more investments because they're a bigger fund. And so, so Lekkes, uh is in some respects doing better than than uh, the CPP in terms of a sort of directional change, uh, but they still have significant distance to travel. But what's wrong with these pension plans investing this way, since since it is the respons- their responsibility to get a good return for Canadians? There's ecological concerns with these investments, but there are also financial concerns with these investments. Fossil fuel companies are already the worst performing sector on the stock market. That's been for the last two years, and that's predicted to get worse uh, in the coming years due to what's referred to as stranded asset risk. And so, Tell me about we, that. What does that mean? Yeah, so stranded asset risk is, is rooted in the idea that fossil fuel companies are currently overvalued. And that's because there's simply no way that they can burn all of their known reserves while giving us any chance of avoiding 1.5 degree warming. And yet their oil, gas and coal reserves are already factored into their share price. And so historically, oil companies have had to prove their ongoing profitability to investors by disclosing their reserves in that you know, oil and gas is sort of de facto a non-renewable resource. So they've had to prove that they've had access to an ongoing supply to retain profitability. And so in the past, having large reserves was a good thing. Uh, It would bolster your uh, share price. In the current moment, in our carbon-constrained world, those big reserves are actually a significant drag on, on value since when stronger legislation comes into force or as alternative energy tech accelerates further, those reserves are going to stay in the ground. They're not going to get realized economically. And so there's talk of a carbon bubble that will deflate when the, this unburnable carbon has to be left in the ground. Now, uh, what about the argument that as a shareholder in a fossil fuel company, you have the chance or, or a pension plan has the chance to influence policy and encourage a transition? If oil and gas companies had a proven track record of acting aggressively on energy transition, then that argument would make more sense. But the data just doesn't back it up. Uh, A 2018 study found that major oil companies only spent 1% of their combined budget on green energy in 2018. In the Canadian context, our biggest spender on renewables is, is Enbridge among Canadian fossil fuel companies. But renewables only comprise 7% of their total investments. And that's like, they're, they're the big winner. Synovus, Imperial, and CNRL, or Canadian Natural, recently, just, just this month, acknowledged that they have no plans uh, to transition. Now, we asked the, the investment arm of the Canada Pension Plan, it's called the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, for its response to your research. And it sent us a statement and some numbers of its own. It says that it shows that in dollars and cents, the amount of money invested in fossil fuels has actually decreased since 2017 from $14.5 billion to about $11.5 billion. What do you say to that? You know, we focused on the number of shares that they hold uh, versus the value of the shares because 
a drop in share price might be confused as a reduction in investment when it's actually just lost value. You know, if the number of shares that they had invested had gone down, then that would probably show the beginnings of a transition. But instead, we actually saw the reverse. And it's likely that that drop in value of their investments has a lot more to do with financial losses, where they've just lost value, more than it suggests a material reduction in investments. And indeed, in an interview uh, this month, their new chief executive, John Graham, confirmed that the fund is not interested in a divestment approach. They want to stay invested in, in fossil fuel companies. Right. Yeah. The, you were mentioning uh, the new head of the investment board, John Graham's article with the Financial Post. Uh, we asked for a, a statement um, from Mr. Graham, but the, we were told uh, that there was not one forthcoming. So we will quote from the Financial Post article. He says uh, he has no intention of engaging in a blanket divestment of fossil fuels, in part because he believes science will help find the answers to the problems presented by emissions. What do you say to that? This argument gets made that we'll be able to encourage these firms to uh, move onto the renewable pathway, but they just have been so reluctant to do so historically that there's little reason to believe that they'll start doing so now when their chief executives are coming out and saying blatantly that they have no plans to do so. The CPPIB also told us that the value of investments in renewable energy has increased by about $6 billion from just $67 million in 2017, and that is a substantial amount, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I know. And we definitely applaud that in our research. We think that's excellent. That's the trajectory things uh, need to go in. So that needs to be coupled with a transition out of fossil fuels so that even more resources can be freed up uh, for investments in, in renewables. Now, let's just touch on the fact that your research only refers to public investments of these pension companies. Why is that? So yeah, we focused on public equities uh, because it's much easier to track their investments, especially historically. But as you heard from the CPP themselves, uh, they have 11.8 billion invested total. And so, you know, a lot of that is, is spread across different asset classes. And so private equity investments is something that they've put a lot of attention towards. And so what that means is that instead of um, investing in companies that sell shares in the stock market, they make direct investments into private companies. And so accessing that information is incredibly difficult. It isn't reported in a consistent way. And so that lack of disclosure makes it very difficult for researchers, let alone uh, regular beneficiaries, to know what uh, their retirement monies are being put towards. Now, I, I doubt that a lot of Canadians, I could be wrong, um, pay attention to their the payments that go ticked off on their paychecks that go into CPP or the the checks that come in the mail when they're retired. Why do you think this should matter to Canadians? In 2019, uh, in our Canadian federal election, over 60% of Canadians voted for parties with serious climate change plans. And likewise, polling done during that election showed that climate was in the top three of concerns among Canadian voters behind affordable housing and healthcare, which are also uh, significant concerns. And so, you know, a significant plurality of Canadian voters support serious action on climate change. And our research suggests that the CPP isn't rising to the challenge. And so that means that, you know, you might be doing all kinds of work in your, in your daily life uh, or with your, your vote. Uh, to sort of support action on climate change. But when you're asleep at night, your retirement monies are actually being put towards uh, the reverse in many respects and supporting companies uh, such as Exxon, which um, CPP has millions of dollars invested in, which has a long history of climate change denial and obstructing the kind of change that we need. James Rowe, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. 
Now, you heard us talking about what CPPIB said to both other media and to us. We also reached out to the public pension fund in Quebec, the Caisse de Depot. It sent us a statement that reads in part, We have to be mindful that it is a transition. Running away from those investments would perhaps be convenient for appearances, but we would much rather get those companies a seat at the table and access to opportunities to lower their carbon footprint. We truly believe that we have a role to play in accelerating the transition towards a low-carbon economy. Despite what you've just heard, there has been a real change in how the world of finance thinks about the climate crisis and the risks it poses. It's no longer characterized as an activist position, nor a sidebar about sustainability in the annual report. The real debate now is whether disclosing climate risks should become mandatory for companies. Our producer, Lisa Johnson, digs into that. In the 1990s, when Tessa Hebb went to financial conferences and presented her work on socially responsible investing, she says environmental concerns were seen as niche. I would find many people in the financial community would sort of pat me on the head and say, you know, there, there, dear, don't worry your head about this. We've got, uh, we've got this all covered. Fast forward 25 years, Hebb is now a distinguished research fellow at Carleton University, and climate change is seen as a major financial risk to insurers and investors. So important, it's often called material. Material information is very important in finance. These are issues that the company is aware of and that they must disclose to the shareholder. It's a subtle piece of business world jargon. If information is deemed material, that means it could have a direct effect on shareholders and their bottom line. By law, companies have to disclose it. And for quite a number of years, environmental issues were not considered to be material. But we've seen a big change in this last um, 15 years that these issues are now seen as being critically important to be disclosed by companies to shareholders. Just what form this disclosure should take is still being debated. But first, let's look at how we got here. This may be the worst storm to ever hit densely populated New York and perhaps... Weird weather is part of it. Hours away from the worst of this. We've already got flooding in the streets here, as you can see, but it's going to hit hard. There are places inland, there are places up the coast. Hurricane Sandy wasn't the first storm to show the costs of extreme weather. But in 2012, when a storm surge flooded the New York subway, closed the stock exchange and caused nearly $20 billion in damage to New York City alone, the impact couldn't be ignored. It's a tremendous honor for me to be here. It was an example Mark Carney cited three years later when he was governor of the Bank of England and gave a speech to insurance executives at Lloyd's of London. And so insurers are therefore amongst those with the greatest incentives to understand and tackle climate change in the short term. Incentives that are sharpened not just by your commercial concerns as capitalists, but your moral considerations as global citizens. He was making a pitch in that high-powered room for something he's still championing today as the United Nations Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance, that investors need information to gauge which companies can make a profit in a changing climate and which will not. Companies would not only disclose what they're emitting today, but also how they plan their transitions 
to the net zero world of the future. Beyond emissions, that disclosure would include both the physical risks from climate change, like, say, a property flooding, and what Carney called transition risk, how climate regulations could make fossil fuel extraction quite suddenly unprofitable for the folks in the room if they didn't see it coming. Key point is that policy action, policy action to promote transition towards a low carbon economy could itself spark fundamental reassessments. Since that speech in 2015, there has been a lot of momentum to do something, including an industry-led task force on climate-related financial disclosure. Among its backers is BlackRock, the largest asset management company in the world. Here's CEO Larry Fink talking to Bloomberg TV. And so this is accelerating. I'm excited about it. I'm a major believer that, that capitalism understands this and we're moving forward because it's good for business. But what remains elusive and controversial is anything mandatory or consistent that an investor could use to compare across years or companies. All the climate disclosure has been voluntary, and many investors are demanding more. Over time, the financial community is saying this is not a risk we want to live with. Danielle Fougere is president and chief counsel of As You So, a shareholder advocacy group in California. It's in the midst of trying to get oil and gas company Chevron to make a plan now for a net zero world by 2050. I mean, the question really is, in a world that is moving away from high carbon fossil fuels, what does a company like Chevron do? Because they currently primarily sell oil and gas. The question is, is that going to be valuable in a world that has to leave fossil fuels behind or we won't be able to address climate change? The case highlights the tension between companies making some voluntary disclosure and the kind of specific accounting some investors are asking for. Last fall, As You So put forward a shareholder proposal asking Chevron for an audited report looking at its fortunes if the world moves to net zero by 2050, which would entail a significant drop in fossil fuel demand. Chevron fought it, saying such a report is unnecessary, in part because the company already does other scenario planning, albeit with less stringent targets. Last month, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission ruled against Chevron, calling its existing disclosures, quote, limited and vague. The SEC wrote about the audited report. This analysis is important to investors in understanding the degree to which the company may be affected by the convergence of world leaders in pursuit of worldwide net zero by 2050 greenhouse gas emissions targets. Now, all this means is As You So's proposal will be considered at the Chevron AGM in May. The company's board of directors is still recommending shareholders vote against it. Even if it passes, an audited report is just information. But that, says Fougere, has power. If after running a net zero scenario, it's clear that a significant amount of the assets will lose value, um, that's a signal to investors that maybe they want to invest their money elsewhere. The coming months could be crucial in deciding whether all companies will have to examine their climate futures. The SEC is currently taking public input on climate risk disclosure, including whether it should be mandatory, something Fink does not want to see. I prefer capitalists self-regulate. But Carney is pushing for mandatory standards ahead of the UN climate meeting this November. And Tessa Hebb says there's good reason to make a level playing field for all companies. I would like to see it. You know, there's lots of research that backs up that although you can make some really great advancements with voluntary disclosure, that mandatory disclosure, it has a, a much deeper impact.
Pushing for disclosure from companies is one approach, but people are also trying their own hand at investing in funds that appear to consider climate. Take Cambridge, Ontario's Brent Lavin. He recently moved his savings from mutual funds to so-called ESG funds, offered as funds that put a priority on environmental, social and governance issues. So the decision to shift away from traditional mutual funds towards ESG investing uh, was mainly due to the fact that they were more transparent. Uh, it, and I also felt that I had more control over the investments themselves. Uh, I, I like the appeal that someone had gone through and evaluated these funds for and screened for things like involvement in tobacco industry or nuclear weapons or fossil fuel intensive industries and have hopefully screened out those industries and that I could invest in companies that I was socially aligned with. My driving concern is absolutely the climate crisis. Having just had a child, I'm greatly concerned about what his future will look like uh, and whether he'll have a, a livable planet. I haven't completely eliminated fossil fuel companies from my portfolio. However, if I am seeing a company has made no net zero pledges or is solely investing in fossil fuels and not transferring to renewable energy investments, I will not have that in my portfolio. Personally, I'm not an economist. I don't have financial training. And I find it very hard to look through the company's financial statements. So you're kind of just going based on analysis reports or the company websites are really trying to get an idea what they're doing. And I constantly run into this issue of whether I trust that or not. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. My name is Tarek Fancy. I'm currently CEO of Rumi and was previously BlackRock's Chief Investment Officer for Sustainable Investing. You might never have heard this man's name. Another face in another huge investment firm, one that touts its so-called green funds far and wide as a way to make money while fighting climate change. And Fancy was part of that. And to be honest, I'm the first to say that I kind of drank the Kool-Aid, right? I went in and I wanted to believe it was true. And it was only when I started digging into the weeds that I realized that, wait a second, like this, the only way this will work is a very slow and plodding thesis where the market fixes itself on its own. And it's directly counter to what all the experts on the economics and policy side are telling us need to be done to address the climate crisis. And that got me worried enough to say that, wait a second, not only is this not going to work. In fact, Fancy had even written a paper about the effectiveness of using investments as a way to fight climate change. You know, I, I, that was that was probably the big moment where I felt like a bit of a fool, to be honest. The challenge I found um, was that as much as I wanted it to work, it doesn't really work as well as I had hoped. And the big challenge is that right now, 
it actually doesn't pay to be responsible. And there's a lot of talk about that being the case. And it's obviously aspirational and we all want to believe it's true. But the reality is that environmental and social considerations won't matter as much to investment activity unless the government actually goes in and fixes market failures. And so a few months ago, after Fancy had left BlackRock and returned to Toronto to run a nonprofit, he felt compelled to write another piece in a big U.S. newspaper. Denying what he had once so publicly embraced, he now compares sustainable investing to offering someone with cancer a glass of wheatgrass as a cure. And the cancer patient is sold this fantasy that they can drink this wheatgrass and that's going to solve you know, the cancer that's silently spreading in their body. There's a real risk that it could be, you know, it could be delaying chemo because it's a placebo that um, that gives us a convenient fantasy, right? If someone convinced me that I could drink wheatgrass instead of doing chemo, you know, having seen the effects of chemo on people, I would probably take the wheatgrass. Fancy is calling on government to meddle in the free market, to take charge as it has for the pandemic. A systemic problem requires a systemic solution. That has to be led by government because it has extraordinary powers to, you know, restrict travel, make masks mandatory indoors, you know, close high risk venues. It's the exact same thing with climate change. Government has extraordinary powers to make fossil fuel players pay the cost of that. And the more that they do that, they put vehicle emissions, restriction limits and other things. The private sector and the markets will react as they always have, and they'll find the most profitable way to work within the the new paradigm. But that requires government action. Tarek Fancy says he reached out to BlackRock before he published his piece in the newspaper, but he says he hasn't spoken to them since then. We did ask BlackRock for a comment, but it didn't respond by our deadline. To look at what change is possible and when it might happen, we've reached Janice Sarah. She's a professor of law at the University of British Columbia, specializing in corporate finance, corporate governance, and securities law. She's also the principal investigator of the Canada Climate Law Initiative. Hello. Hello. When it comes to figuring out how climate-friendly an investment is, how easy is that to do for the average Canadian? It's getting easier for average Canadians, but there are still some challenges. And I think it depends on what you're talking about. For example, um, we're all involved in capital markets in the sense that if we have savings in our bank or credit union, we can actually look to what they're doing with our money while they're in the savings account. If you're a pension beneficiary and you've got an employer-sponsored pension plan, increasingly the pension plans are disclosing what they're doing although there's still obstacles to that in the sense that a number of them in Canada aren't yet very climate conscious. If it is that sort of uneven, how big is the risk of of what is called greenwashing then? I think there's some risk, although I think that can't really uh, detract from the fact that we really need to press our pension funds, our financial institutions, our insurance companies to actually be taking action on climate change in terms of their investments and also to be actually disclosing that to the investing public. And in that, I think there's a role for regulation in the sense that part of the risk around greenwashing right now is that there isn't a standardized metric against which a company can actually say, this is what we're doing. Okay. Now, you've touched on this already. I think there is movement in the right direction in certain sectors. Can you give us an example of that? 
Certainly. So companies in Canada are regulated by securities regulators. And the securities uh, regulators have said really clearly now that directors and officers of companies must disclose to their investors what actions they're taking to identify and manage material climate-related risks. So that was a new direction that came out late last year. That's a really good start in the right direction. We are asking the federal government and other regulators of financial institutions to do much the same. We have civil society really saying, what is Canada doing about climate change? We're at pretty high risk in this country, as you would well know. We may be at 1% warming, but Canada is warming at twice that rate. And so we are going to run into problems, more problems than we already are having faster than the rest of the world. But, but what role can government or regulators play in this then? So I think governments can play many roles. And, you know, the federal government has moved, obviously, on carbon pricing legislation, which embeds a price of carbon and really incents companies and investors to change their emissions. They can regulate in the sense that they can say to companies, you need to set targets to net zero emissions. And that can be done under current legislation, in my view, and just on regulation under current statutes. So you don't need to actually enact whole new laws to do that. But there has to be the political will for businesses, for financial institutions, for all of us to do it. And it's one of those things that isn't just for the government, it's for everyone to actually engage in this issue. And I think we think, oh, those are big companies, big investors, big banks. And as ordinary citizens, we can't really do too much. But I think that's not the case. If we have pensions, we definitely, um, our, our trustees of our pension funds have a duty, a fiduciary duty, to manage our assets prudently, which means really that they have to think about the promise they've made to give us pensions at the end of the period that we worked so hard in so many years. And so we really can demand of them that they are paying careful attention to where the investments are going and trying to shift trajectory to protect the capital in our pension plans. But when you talk about these vast pension plans, you are one voice among millions. What, how, what kind of an impact can you have? I think if all of us uh, raised our voices, then we'd have a substantial impact, quite frankly. And I think there are you know, organizations working to try to empower pension beneficiaries and others to ask those questions, to start to require that. And I speak as someone who's a grandmother now. Uh, is that I really want to leave a world for my grandchildren that is not only healthy, the air quality is good, it's sustainable, but that we have an economy that is really offering them opportunities going forward. And so the failure to act in a really comprehensive fashion now is going to make a huge, huge difference to what they face in a very short time period. And so I think that if we're not really pressing and pushing for the finance part of this to take place. Uh, we're not going to reach the kinds of goals that we need to reach. We heard the criticism of these so-called ESG funds, that they aren't really accomplishing the kind of change that, that you want to see. What really is needed is greater regulation. Um, you've talked about the regulatory aspect, but I'm wondering just if you can address your own views about these ESG funds. So I do think there's a risk, and it comes back to um, the fact that we don't have standardized data. We don't have standardized metrics that say, compare company A to company B and what they're doing. Where we see progress, though, is where companies are actually saying, 
This is part of our financial risk. It's embedded right in our financial statements. You can see it in our income statement. You can see it in our balance sheet. And these are the actions that we're taking. And these are the emissions that we're reducing. And when I see those kinds of reports, I'm very encouraged because that really says they've set a goal. Uh, they're working towards it. They're putting money into it. And uh, they're shifting trajectory. And, and the other thing, frankly, is ESG is a very broad category. So environmental includes climate, but includes everything else environmental. Social is everything from, you know, civil society uh, to abolishing child labor to, you know, discrimination in the workplace. And the difficulty when you have these broad umbrella parameters is they can claim to be ESG, but you can't actually see on a measurable basis what they're accomplishing. Well, I, I don't know how long you've been calling for this kind of action, but how optimistic are you that it will actually happen and happen quickly enough? Uh, well, I'm optimistic it will happen. Whether it happens quickly enough is a, certainly a concern, and it does keep me up at night. But I'd say it's happening. I see huge movement in the last 12 months. There were noises from uh, regulators, even as recently as 12 months ago, that climate change is uh, not a public policy issue or is a public policy issue and not a private sector issue. I think that has substantially changed now. I think you have many, many companies, many of the banks, many of the uh, energy companies that are shifting trajectory that are investing in renewables now. Uh, Transalta out of Alberta, its wind energy business is now bigger than its classic fossil fuel business. And so we see that upscaling now. And if we continue, I, I have to feel optimistic. Before we go, we want to let you hear from Natasha Bartels. She's a teacher in Toronto. Recently, she started thinking about her pension and climate change. For Bartels, part of every paycheck goes to the Ontario Teachers' Pension Plan. I hadn't really understood the scope of our pension and just how big it is and how much market power it has. And my feeling is a middle-class person with a middle-class income and, and financial power, but my pension is definitely large and powerful. As of this year, they're valuing at about $220 billion. It's done very well for many years. It's been uh, solidly growing, and I, I only know a bit about its investments. And, and the reason why is because it's quite opaque. Uh, it's difficult to get the kind of details about this, but it's looking at probably from the research that has been done on it and what has been discovered, it's probably about $8 billion dollars. Uh, in, in various fossil fuel investments. And I'm not sure of that how much is primary versus secondary. So, for example, directly involved in oil sands in Alberta versus how much is invested in things like uh, airports, you know, would be secondary form of fossil fuel investment. She wants her pension to get out of fossil fuels and into climate solutions, not just for herself, but for her students. You know, I'm, I'm in my middle age now, but I'm teaching all these young people and to know that I'm supposed to be preparing them for the, you know, their future and make them, you know, able to be employed and able to have um, a decent life. And uh, it feels like a, a lie to be doing that when at the same time climate change is escalating and, and our pension plan is part of it, like that's helping to literally, you know, bankroll it. I actually grew up in Newfoundland and um, I was a kid when the collapse of the cod fishery happened and, uh, you know, just just stuff I've witnessed in my own life. You know, I, I love being around in nature and seeing these things that are diminishing and being damaged in front of my eyes. And so um, the, the financial stuff becomes meaningless if you don't have any way to access it or enjoy it. So I think I'd have to say 
it's the fear that I have for our climate future for myself and for younger people that I'm teaching. That outweighs really anything. Natasha Bartels is a high school teacher in Toronto. She and her colleagues boast that their very loud voices have pushed pension plan administrators to start talking about green investments. And a few months ago, the Ontario Teachers' Pension Plan committed to achieving net zero emissions by 2050. That does it for this week. But before we go, I have to say we do love hearing from you. And we really want to know what questions you have about climate change. Email us directly. It's earth at cbc.ca or just head to our website and click on the question box. Now, we have a question for those of you who live north of Toronto. The proposed Highway 413 has caused some controversy. One of the concerns is the impact on climate. What do you think? If you live in the area and you want to share your thoughts, please get in touch with us. Thanks this week to the What on Earth team, a team that just won the Canadian Journalism Foundation's first ever award for climate solutions reporting. We're proud of the work we do and we're thankful you trust us every week to bring these stories to you. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.